0: Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this episode. ElixirConf EU 2020 is going hybrid. ElixirConf EU is taking place in London, England, or wherever you are for the virtual track, on the 9th and 10th of June, with training on the 6th through the 8th. For more information and to get your tickets, visit elixirconf.eu. Closure D will be held in Berlin on the 11th of June 2022. Closure D is a closure conference with national and international speakers. Talks will cover big data processing, asynchronous and reactive programming, ClojureScript, and many other topics. The conference will be held in English. Tickets are on sale now, including supporter tickets to help Clojure D reach and support a more diverse audience by offering a contingent of free tickets to people from groups traditionally underrepresented in the Clojure community and in the wider tech community. If your company would like to sponsor Clojure D, they have new packages lined up for recruitment, marketing, and sponsorship. Enclosure D is always happy to expand their network and grateful for support. Visit ClojureD.de for more information and to register. Lambda Days 2022 has been pushed back until the 28th and 29th of July. Taking place in Krakow, Poland and online, two Lambda Days tracks will be run as hybrid tracks combining both an in-person and virtual experience. Lambda Ladies, Lambda Days wants you. For every Lambda Lady in your group, everyone gets 10% off the price, up to 50% off the entire order. Visit lambdadays.org to register and to find out more. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Also, Some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Alexander Lisecki. I'm sure I've mispronounced that. My Polish is poor. I'm sorry, but
1: would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Alexander Lisiecki, and currently I work at Erlang Solutions for over three and a half years as a consultant in Erlang and Elixir, which means I am sometimes a developer and sometimes also a trainer. I had seen your post.
0: Didn't realize they were necessarily from you putting face and name and blog post together. Back with your sound of Erlang, which kicked off Duncan McGregor's whole work on Undertone, which we talked about. But I actually got to sit down with you at Lambda Days in 2021 at the virtual tables and we were talking. So, and I saw you're now Lambda Days presenter for this year, but wanted to catch back in with you and just play catch up. So, let's just start with your background. How did you get into software and getting a job at Erlang Solutions.
1: Yeah, So my story basically begins at university, which is still called AGH, University of Science and Technology. This is a technical university uh, based in Krakow and depending on the year and uh, the newspaper, uh, it is claimed to be in one of top three places, uh, universities in Poland. And yeah, depending on the ranking, because two other universities are from Warsaw and if the newspaper is from Warsaw, then surprisingly often there is a correlation that AGH is ranked as a third one. And if the newspaper is from Krakow, which is also where AGH is, then AGH suddenly surprisingly often shows up on the higher places. And yeah, I started working as a developer At SolarWinds, as I started my work as a C Sharp developer, I was back then as an intern and it was after second year of my studies. And during that year, I have, I have had classes first learning Haskell and then learning some Erlang. And this is somewhat funny story because Haskell was my first, my first contact with functional programming languages. Before that, we had classes with stuff like C, C++, um, Java, and and other programming languages like that. But we started functional programming uh, with Haskell, and the feature that I appreciated in Haskell the most, with comparison to Java and all those other programming languages we have learned, was not all this static typing, not this great compiler, etc. It was simply that you can express your program in a very few letters because for a long time I simply couldn't learn to type fast. So I deeply appreciated the, the programs that could be written in as few letters as possible, not to spend whole evening trying to write my program. Yeah and I must say that once upon a time I was actually asked by my girlfriend so who was your first love and I said that my first true love was Haskell and she replied that it was a strange name for a for a girl but never mind. So so if
0: you had some C-sharp experience, some C++, learn Java, did you have any background coming in with those where you kind of had that frame of reference? And when did Haskell fit in with learning Haskell versus learning the other languages? Were they all close to the same time or were there
1: some established patterns before you learned Haskell? basic idea, at least uh, in the times I studied, which was not that recently, which was pretty recently, sorry, is that we had each term, we had a different subject, and on that subject, we were learning different programming language. And through that language, we're also learning certain concepts. So you obviously did not become Java Java architect or Java, or even Java, let's say junior developer, you might aspire to be Java intern. After that course, but through this basic Java, you have learned the concept of, for example, object oriented programming. When you picked C++, uh, you had some switch between the C procedural C with the idea of uh, managing strictly on the very hardware with shifting bytes left and right, understanding how it all works underneath. And uh, so this was the idea and. I must say that I have not mastered Haskell as I haven't other programming languages, but the idea there was very nice that we had we had to learn Haskell and coding some stuff in Haskell because there is no other way to go than functional way in Haskell, right? So that was a really nice thing to have. And I remember we also had Prologue classes in the same subject as half term each. And so that was pretty nice. Since
0: you're doing Haskell early and didn't sound like you came from a big background of imperative or OO world and you're learning OO and functional at the same time, did anything click easier since you didn't have to be in a world of mutability and you're like, oh, now I have to learn how to think about immutability because I'm so used to mutability or I'm so used to object oriented. I now have to think about functional and not objects. What were some of the things that you found as you were kind of learning all these different paradigms at the same time that made you have Haskell as your first love?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the the main uh, advantage of learning Haskell was that somewhat unsurprisingly, you do avoid quite a few errors when you introduce immutability. For example, you don't overwrite your own variable after long calculations, which makes you run them again and warm up your room by that. I would say that uh, it's not really that any programming language is particularly worse than some other one, It's uh, or some paradigm is particularly worse than some other one. It's simply that some concepts are harder for some people to understand than other concepts. I assume that there are quite a few people who get object-oriented really well. I must say I didn't. I mean, I understand the idea that you try to encapsulate stuff, etc. Not going into all the details what object-oriented programming is here, but at least for me, it was much easier to write uh, to to go with this functional approach. Probably, I uh, I simply I simply fit the type of programmer you need there. It's a, it's a lazy pe- person who always forgets to free the memory after you use it. So that's an awesome place for me. I actually recall a story from one of my colleagues uh, that when he was on university, they used to write programs in C and C++, and they had to allocate and deallocate memory by themselves. So what they did, they were writing, uh, writing programs that were extremely fast, so they didn't have time to, to fall into segfault. And this this was the solution for them as a student, and it was good enough accepted by their professors. So I was never good enough to write such fast programs, but conveniently for me, I have never I have not run into seg faults in functional world. So
0: you get some exposure to functional programming
1: in college.
0: You come out of college, you get your internship, and C-sharp, but right now you're working at Erlang Solutions doing Erlang and Elixir. What was the transition of, you got this C-sharp internship, you're doing some of that stuff. How did you think about that after having done some Haskell? Did that influence some ways you were thinking about? And then how did
1: you get into Erlang Solutions? I might have mis-expressed myself, but to clarify that, it was basically that I was in parallel, studying and working as a developer after second year of uh, at university. So when I started working as the C as intern with the C sharp, I also had the, uh, the Haskell classes. And on the next term, we had classes called parallel computing, and there were two professors. One was teaching Ada, and it was like 50% of the classes, and the other 50% of classes was Erlang. And uh, this is, this is I must say like. Perfect marketing story. So, if there is anyone from marketing department listening this podcast because they somehow got lost, then I think they can learn on this story. And the classes were taught by uh, PhD PhD Piotr Matyashik, whom from this place I would like to uh, warmly greet and thanks for his lessons. And he started. His, he was teaching Haskell before that, and then he was teaching the Erlang and. I remember that on the very first lecture, he started his lecture not by telling us, yeah, Erlang is great, et cetera. He started the lecture from showing us a YouTube video of a rocket, Ariane 5, starting and after a few seconds, after it starts, it simply explodes. And the first sentence after, like, the whole class went, that's crazy, what, what, what do we do here? Why do you want the rocket to explode? He said, yeah, the software uh, implementation for this rocket was written in ADA. So which do you pick to learn? Erlang or ADA? And I must say that till nowadays, I cannot persuade myself to use ADA. Obviously, he later explained that it was that it was not a feature, but uh, it it was not a bug, but a feature that the rocket exploded because if the rocket starts and it fall, falls uh, on the ground, it may cause a huge damage in one place. And if it explodes in the air, then the smaller pieces falling into different places will cause uh, smaller damage overall. So that was the story. And the bug was that they simply ported certain part of code from Arion-4 rocket to Arion-5 rocket without changing the parameters, and Ada is is so like the well typed that you can actually uh, define a type of integer between three and five. And uh, one of the sense, one of the like components said, so something is out of range, I have to crash. And it went all the, all the way up to the main computer saying, yeah, rocket has to explode. And this is, this is the story behind. But if you start with the video of rocket exploding, of saying it was written in the competitions program language, then you know you have already bought quite a few hearts. From those classes, I have actually picked like basic Erlang and I have written, I have seen, there was no like official uh, program of internship or stuff like that. I have simply written an email to Erlang Solutions. Hey. I am very keen on learning more Erlang and working in this programming language. Would you accept me as an intern? And they said, yeah, we have this program of School of Erlang. Please feel free to join. And if you are still interested, then we'll invite you uh, for an interview. And I joined the classes. I really appreciate them. They were very nice. They were done by Michał Ślaski. He worked for 15 years in Erlang Solutions. Now he has left, but also... I think he's doing uh, an initiative to learn young girls about programming to like, to lower the gap between ladies and gentlemen in programming world. So he introduces programming to young girls. It's called Koderki, which will be coding girls or try to translate it from Polish to English. that's, That's the way. And yeah, and that's, that's where my internship begin. So what did the
0: Erlang school look like? Was that just side training courses that Erlang Solutions was doing? What is How was that set up that got you deeper into Erlang? What were those next steps?
1: School of Erlang is actually an annual event happening. So it's for a brief while before COVID, it was even happening twice a year, but it usually happens once a year. These are four classes. So usually week after week, And those classes were about two hours long. And uh, we try to prepare the classes to be slightly different each time, but they all are based on a similar concept. And the concept is that we start from zero and we try teaching you some Erlang by making a fun project. And later on, I I have actually run two editions of this school of Erlang. I remember we tried implementing hot desking applications, so we moved to the new office, and the office has fewer desks than there are workers. Obviously, most of the workers don't show up in the office We work remotely nowadays because of COVID. And uh, to book the desks in the office, we have planned this system, and it never really worked in terms of production, but the idea is not to build already working product, but the idea is to learn new Erlang, to show you the tooling, for example. So the most recent ones were done uh, remotely, but previously literally standing behind you and looking through your shoulder, helping you to get to the code. And also what I really enjoyed in the in-class learning was that you get to the class and for those two hours, no one will interrupt you. You will probably get an email on your phone or stuff like that, but you can put your email in the bag and no one will come and poke you. Hey, would you like some tea? Or, Hey, would you like to talk? And this is something I must say that is somewhat missing in the remote environments. Unless you live alone, then, yeah, then maybe postman will come. They, they always come in the least expected moments. And back then, I remember we were working uh, because uh, back then, Pierre Dietlinger, and I probably mispronounced his name. He released the first version of his board, and boards are called Grips. And Erlang Solutions, as a, by saying at least by name, obviously uh, Erlang company got ten of those boards, so we can exper- so they could experiment on that, and they they simply rent us the boards. They just saying, here is the board for a week, try out your project, and we're trying to. Uh, learn some along but also trying to have it uh, eventually useful for if i recall correctly it was for a farmer and he had like a greenhouse and he wanted to check if the temperature does not fall too low because if it does then there are certain issues with crops so if the temperature goes down he needs to be notified when he gets notified then He can come and uh, turn on the heating, and otherwise there is no reason to use the heating, so um, it will be possibly more eco-friendly and obviously uh, cost-effective. So this was the first version of the board, and the second version of the board was supposed to be released a year and a half ago, and they released it a few days ago. A days or two weeks, something like that. And I think that you can find, uh I can send you the link now or later, uh, but you can find my school of Erlang classes on my GitHub.
0: So you take this school of Erlang and you say, yes, this is for me. You start getting in. It sounds like you picked it up pretty well, because you had a couple of blog posts, you started doing... The, as we mentioned before, what kind of came on the radar and put the name to the name to the face and everything was your the sound of Erlang post and saying that, but I know you've done spawnfest and things like that as you got in and you went from school of Erlang and said yes, Erlang Solutions. I know in the past you'd mentioned, and I think you just even did some where you're training stuff as what well, like you're learning it, you're developing it, but you're also training Erlang as well what were some of the things that as you got in and either you encountered first learning erlang or you saw people when you were teaching your school of erlang what were some of those things that may have had erlang click and really attract and say oh okay yeah i've heard about like oh the crazy 99s of uptime and things that are sold and some of this let it crash mentality and people were like okay this is interesting but what's there, what were some of the things either you saw yourself or you saw in students
1: that really helped people sell themselves on early? At least for me, there are quite a few things there. Probably the the main one is that there is quite a lot of tooling and most of the system can be looked through. it. It might not be as easy for all the components because there is some C running underneath to run the beam, which is Erlang virtual machine. And this is where you might consider it as a sorcery at black magic. Or some people say black box if you are from test world. But above that, most of the stuff is pretty straightforward. You get a simple programming language, which somehow manages to implement quite a few ideas before they were fashionable. I would say that Erlang is a hipster before hipsters were hipsters, if that makes sense. If you look at their distribution, for example, nowadays we have Kubernetes systems, etc. And back then, they introduced an idea of application, which was a special, let's think of it as a special process, which runs on a certain machine and you can connect distributed machines into Erlang cluster, and those machines are loosely connected. So if one of them dies because, for example, I decided to do the vacuuming, I need a plug, I unplug one of my machines, the other two still work, and I can define takeover and failover mechanisms, which are essentially the same as you do in Kubernetes. So if one of the nodes goes down, then I can restart my application, then it it automatically uh, can restart uh, start the application running on the other node. Or uh, if I start a new node, I can migrate the application to the other node. And this kind of mechanisms were invented quite a while before we came up with all this Docker and Kubernetes stuff. So that's one of, I would say, cool things. And second thing is that if you think of any programming languages uh, language, most of them will work perfectly fine as long as you run in a single thread. So as long as you execute instructions one by one, then it's perfectly usable, right? And it then turns out to be more problematic when you have to run more than one process because you suddenly fall into all those deadlocks, problems, and stuff like that. And here it's solved in a quite quite easy way. So... For example, by immutability, you don't get your data from one process overwritten by other process. And this is what is, I think, the most classical example of all the classes where you have two processes increasing certain counter. Each of them should be doing that 10 times, but for some reason, the result is 19 instead of 20, right? So you usually don't get errors like this. When you eventually get error in Erlang, it's either... a immediate fix, which is that, for example, some value in JSON was incorrect because someone said true-false and you said on-off for a certain parameter, all these are b- bugs that are basically that you get an, you get a certain behavior once in a million, ex- million code executions or stuff like that. And this is, this is the tricky bugs, which are basically very often unreproducible. Because you run your system for a year and it occurs once in once a year. And this is, this is it. So. And this is, I would say another cool thing because how do you predict unpredictable stuff? And in Erlang, they solved it really nicely because they said, yeah, my process can crash from time to time. I don't care. I mean, I have some other process that will simply restart that pro, will watch that other process if it crashes for some reason. And if it does, then yeah, there will be a log so developer can uh, look into it, but I can simply restart it and it will, for the second time, it should probably work just fine, right? So. And I was told that it's actually that back in the old days in Ericsson, they had a physical person sitting in front of a computer restarting the program if it crashed on the console. So you had to sit for a whole day, observing the console if the program crashed and just physically restarted. So what they did, they simply wrote a process, a supervisor, which is a process, and does the same job. And we don't have to have people bored to death, almost literally. Right? So there's quite a few things there in Erlang.
0: And another part with your training that you're doing in your consulting when you go into these. What are some of the things that you find are the biggest different ways of thinking that it takes people to adjust before they understand Erlang? So you're either training people fairly new or you're working with some other teams, but because you're working with Erlang Solutions and you've got not just your experience of seeing a bunch of different companies and practices with Erlang, you've got all your coworkers and stuff what are some of the things that you've seen when you go into either help with training or just work on dev teams that are just kind of those biggest like roadblocks to actually understanding and doing Erlang well? Cause there seems to be a mindset shift that you can do Erlang decent and then you can really take advantage of Erlang as well. And Elixir too, where once you kind of understand a couple of those moving pieces then your whole mindset shifts. Are, have you noticed any of those that make that jump to doing Erlang okay, to doing Erlang well, that when you explain it, it's like, oh, that makes a whole lot more sense why we do things like that. And it's not, and it's not, when it's one of those things that should probably be more common knowledge that's not as common
1: as it is. Yeah, so I think that there are quite, there are actually three, maybe not like covering 100%, but three main factors that actually somehow Elixir Elixir tries to solve and does it pretty well, that are hard for people coding in Erlang. And firstly, this is syntax, because they come and they see this prologue-like syntax and they are like, dude, I have coded in 20 programming languages, like C, C++, C Sharp, Java, and he names, all of them. And I don't know half of the names, but I still smile politely. To him, because he's probably like bazillion years more experienced developer than I am. And he sees the syntax and he says, I can't make head nor tail of it. So it takes a few moments to adjust to this slightly different syntax. That's one thing. And this is, this is done uh, really nicely by Elixir because Elixir basically adjusted syntax to use the Ruby one. Second thing is that there is the tooling. It's now very much improving with Rebar3 and, for example, my colleague, Radek Shemchishin, uh working on Gradualizer, which is a new type checker for Erlang, and then they make the same type checker for Elixir called Gradient. So the tooling improves on Erlang, but but yeah, I, I would say that, the to- that this is a kind of another thing that you need to adjust to, that till pretty recently, I would say that the tooling was rather limited there. Which, if you compare to, this is a second thing where Elixir, like, shines. From the very start, they got the tooling to make it extremely more convenient. So you don't spend almost little to none time, like, writing your own make files, because that's not what you're interested. You're, you don't care about writing make files. No one will tell, great job writing your make file, unless this is your teammate from the same team, and you speed up building process twice then they will congratulate you. But for the product's sake, it doesn't matter, right? And if you have to do it yourself, you have to also learn it. And if you get the tool that does it for you, and then you save this time and you can do actual developing, right? That's the second thing. And the third thing, which I think is... I somewhat blame Elixir for doing that. And this is basically somewhat hiding these processes and the mechanism of processes communicating. So the elixir somewhat hides it and in Erlang it's not so much hidden. So it's the layer that you are isolated from in the communication is much thinner. And this is also why I guess so people are somewhat afraid of those processes because if you are a graduate from STEM and you know one thing about processing multiple processes in parallel then you know it's hard and it's probably for some more experienced people. And I don't think it's it should be that. I mean, you should not be af- afraid of starting something simply because it's hard. So you cannot change how the processing works much, right? But what you can do is you can stop telling people, yeah, processing is in parallel is hard. I mean, it is hard, obviously, but you shouldn't be telling that because people get scared and they will not... Even start trying, right? So these are I think the three main points. So
0: I saw recently that Spawnfest happened this year and I think and you mentioned you did it last year as well, but you mentioned winning a couple Spawnfests. Do you want to give it a little more detail besides just the name for anybody who's unfamiliar with the Erling and Elixir ecosystem with SpawnFest and talk about some of the stuff you did with Spawnfest and what came out of it?
1: I think I have a short blog post on what SpawnFest is, but long story short, it's a hackathon. And this is an annual event, usually happening somewhere in the middle of September. And the cool part is that it was always fully remote, so you can join from anywhere. And the main idea is that it is 48 hours, uh, so whole weekend reserved, and you... Anything related to Beam, so Erlang virtual machine. So you can be writing in Erlang in Elixir and some other, for example, Lisp-flavored Erlang, or there is Glam, I think. You can even write in other programming languages, just if as long as you work within the general area of Beam. So you can, for example, write in write certain parts of programs in C, so that you can have matrix processing done later on in Erlang, right? So it does, or you can. If you, for, there was a really nice tool done this year, I think E-Flame, but it's to be looked up. But it is a tool to visualize, basically flame graphs, if I recall correctly. So how much time uh, process spends in each function, and this obviously you will not be writing website in Erlang, right? I mean, you should be using CSS, JavaScript, HTML stuff like that, right? So the sponsor is this annual hackathon and I participated for the first time this uh, 20 in 2021 and for the first time I did not win any prizes then in the meantime I also participated in some live hackathons and I have learned that in hackathon it's not that you need to build like ready made solution in hackathon you need a uh, almost working by almost, I mean that you, have, you can do the demo version, not that it's not actually working, but almost working idea. And the most important part here is this idea. So when you get the right idea and then you point to certain categories in which prices are given, then you sort of not fight for all the prices, but fight for those particular ones, right? And after the lessons I have learned, not winning anything on the first time, I came to the conclusion that the one thing I can do is that maybe I will not have the most innovative project across the board. Maybe I will not have the fastest project, but I like my project to be done in the most correct way. So to plug in all the, uh, all the possible tooling to check if I am doing something let's say, not the Erlang way, to at least test cover all the code I write. Because there's obviously a difference between testing and test covering, right? But test covering says that you have at least executed the code, right? And it does not crash. So there is certain part of success there. And this turned out to be somewhat successful in 2020 when I was writing my driver to Neo4j database. This is a graph database. And then I picked a slightly bigger task for a competition database, which is Arango DB. And they claim to be multimodal, but among others, they also have the graph model in it. But because they are multimodal, the API is much bigger. So I obviously couldn't, it is just 48 hours and I couldn't implement the whole API, but I could at least implement most of it. So I got the working version and there are some for example, there are certain points where you have to add another function just to pass certain options, but you get the whole skeleton of a project there, and everything that is there is tested right and This turned out to be appreciated not in the like the most innovative categories but the the correctness the maintainability category this is where I got some places on the podium right yeah, and the cool part was that I was participating alone, so I didn't have to share the uh, share the prizes right. You mentioned
0: the Sound of Erlang post. I've seen a couple of your Spawn Fest where you're doing some stuff. And it looks like you kind of venture out and play with a bunch of different things. What other kind of interesting projects have you tried to apply Erlang to that for play just your Sound of Erlang where you're like, oh, I'm going to do music on the beam is not something you necessarily think Erlang out of the box. But once you kind of dig into it, you're like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. Especially, again, the way Duncan even was doing it with his undertone project that your blog posts inspired, you start to see there is a lot of stuff here where it makes sense. Well, any other interesting things that you've played with that? Cause I know Erlang solutions does a bunch of hackathons. Are there any other things that like, yeah, we think about Erlang for websites. Now there's some stuff with nerds where it's just a bunch of IOT kind of stuff coming. Are there any other places that you found either in your play or watching other teammates play that you're like, You don't necessarily even think of the beam, whether it's Erlang or Elixir, for this kind of stuff, but that you think are really interesting ideas and places to playground that may not be obvious at first.
1: I must say that my blog post about the sound of Erlang was much, much simpler, and it was touching really the total basics of how the sound is created, with comparison to what we have seen in this later presentation. Even mentioning me was very, like, flattering there. But yeah, I more or less I was trying to show that it's not like Erlang is specifically for instant messaging and running RabbitMQ, right? As it says on Wikipedia, and I think we can we can look that up, but if I recall correctly, it says a general purpose programming language, right? So it's not domain specific. I can run anything there, it's simply very often not so efficient, right? And creating the music was somewhat inspired by I was partially inspired by a coffee break conversation with one of the accountants in the Erlang Solutions office because she asked something about the sound and I said it's so simple to make a sound, right? I'm almost going to bet that I can explain you how you make sound in the computer. And she was not really trusting me and I said, I can do that. And I literally picked uh, like a piece of paper and pencil and explained it all and she was not so persuaded so I decided to write a blog post and it turned out to eventually persuade her that she understands how the sound is created even though she was like I totally don't get what the code says I just understand the words and the the main part here was that she hated maps, so that was somewhat funny yeah I would say that you shouldn't be afraid to use Erlang in any other field so when we got those grease boards, I actually looked them up and they, in terms of price. So if I can get one for myself. And back then I was an intern and it is somewhat natural that as an intern, you don't earn this, that much. And the board was, I think, 200 euros with VAT tax included. So it would simply be unaffordable for me. And I decided, yeah, I want to do smart home. I don't want to do it on Greece, but I can buy Raspberry Pi 0W for like 20 euros, about that, which is 10 times cheaper. So this is already what you... I think... I wouldn't say it's cheap or expensive because that probably depends on how much you earn, but I would say it's affordable, or at least it was affordable for me. And for a while I was just developing that to have some fun at my apartment, for example, attempting to connect those nodes plugged into different plugins into Erlang cluster. But after a while, I actually found a use case for this project. And the use case was that I come from Silesia, which is southwest part of Poland, and there still is a house with my mom living there. and. Back then, there was a problem that she sometimes forgot to, there was, we had a, we have a heating, since this is a coal region, we have a heating that there was a stove, a big stove with a a container where you can fill the container and that that will pass the coal to the stove as it needs, as the stove needs the coal. So I actually found a use case that she sometimes forgot to add the coal and the uh, whole fireplace went off. Because lacking the fuel, obviously. So what I did, I have implemented another sensor, set it all up in home to connect it locally. I have written a very simple application with literally one value and one button. And the value was how many rotations, because there is like a screw passing the code. So how many rotations were done since the last reset of the counter? And the counter was kept in the cloud. I used Firebase Cloud for that, and the app had only the reset button. So whenever she went to add the call, she had to reset the button. And after a few tries, she knew more or less what was the value of rotations to empty the container, right? So the solution almost worked because I have implemented that all through the weekend. It all worked like a charm. The only issue was that she simply added the call and from time to time forgot to press the reset button. And the counter went, uh, always went off without, so it did not reset, right? It simply kept adding. So she got frustrated that it didn't remind her again. But I said, but you didn't reset it, so how do you expect it to remind it again? And that's where I learned that there is this Morphe law saying that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And I thought that the limit was when you have two buttons and you press the wrong one. But now I have understand that if you have one button, there is still an option to Click it when you don't when you're not supposed to, and not click it when you're supposed to, and this is what I have learned the hard way. Yeah, the system almost worked by that. So, and then you got a talk
0: at Lambda Days coming up. Usually in February, because of COVID, they've postponed it some. Do you want to pitch your talk, share anything about the talk that's coming up, tease it, or anything else about it?
1: Yeah, so. Lambda Days was supposed to be in February, but they moved it to June. So first time I can go there just wearing a t-shirt or a shirt with short sleeves instead of a heavy winter coat, which is a great thing. And yeah, regarding my talk, I will be talking about energy efficiency of programming languages. And the idea was inspired by uh, me having a conversation with my manager from here, I can send greetings. It was Joanna from Krakow, ESL office. And what happened there, she she said that, yeah, so some of colleagues always mentioned that this Erlang King is so efficient. And I said, it might be the case, but I don't know. I will have to look it up. And she was like, yeah, nice. But they all tell it is so efficient. And and then I started Googling and some people were uh, on some forums were saying, yeah, you should only write in C because it's the most efficient. And also, Linus Torvalds used it, so it must be right. And I don't want to take anything from uh, Linus Torvalds. I'm just showing how the arguments are built. And then there were some other voices like, C is the worst ever. You should only be using Rust. And this is the only way to go. Then there were some other voices. And also, I have seen some tweets, for example, from WhatsApp saying that, we have decreased power consumption by increasing efficiency in this and this number of percent, just upgrading Erlang version or stuff like that. And I came to the conclusion, Hey, there must be a study there. And so I tried looking that up and there is a very nice study, but this is not whole thing because the question is, what do you use your programming language for? Right? It's completely different when you are supposed to write an application running or some on some server in a, amazon right it's completely different when you're supposed to have the application running on your mobile phone right because if you look at your mobile phone one of the most energy consuming thing is just the screen so if you have an application that does not run that turns the screen off it will be one of the most energy efficient ones right and it does not really depend on programming language so maybe not going into much more detail but it's not a particularly well asked question. If I ask you which programming language is the most efficient one, because you have to ask in what specific task, right? Yeah. So this will be a somewhat of a teaser. I hope if anyone wants to join Lambda Days, and if COVID allows it. Oh, by the way, I have reminded myself that there is. When you said about this uh, Arion 5, I, I said the story about Iron 5, uh, and you mentioned later that there is this let it crash philosophy. So there is somewhat ironical bit. The first thing we have seen is the rocket exploding and crashing, basically. And Erlang's motto is let it crash. And I assume that this motto is also why Erlang never caught up in the aviation business. So,
0: so your Lambda Day's presentation, you've given what it's about. Is this you stitching all the pieces together and giving context of different things that you found? Or are you doing some of the research and trying to do some of these benchmarks, trying to understand energy performance too, based off other stuff? Or is this just kind of the, here's what I found report of your research?
1: I would say, uh, depending uh, how it goes, but I'm actually aiming, at least for now, to have a bit of both. So there will be a quite a big part of here is what I found and I am also aiming and hoping to prepare let's say comparative question. So one of the things is and this is something you have to consider this is what I basically tried asking earlier. So what program should I write to benchmark my programming language on performance in terms of energy efficiency, right? Because that's not so clear, right? I mean If you, for example, consider just hashing operation, right? So you want to do the hashing 100,000 times. I'm not sure that's the case, but I assume that if in C, you can do it with mutable state and just implement it almost directly on a particular bit happening. There is not much overhead, right? And if you consider doing the same in Erlang, then you have immutable state. So each time you do the next hash, right? you will have to eventually garbage collect them, which is certain overhead, right? And this is probably why there is certain inefficiency in terms of electricity consumption there, right? But is programming all about hashing? In a big part, it's hashing is important, but it's not about, all about hashing, right? After all, there are some developers needed to have certain websites set up so we can have Lambda days program seen, right? And I can you know, I can show off to my friends that look, I am on the website. We're coming up
0: on time. Is there anything else that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up or discuss or that you want to share of interesting things you found in your time or lessons and takeaways you found?
1: Yeah. So I think that there is something I am somewhat coming back and forth and trying to work on, and this is let's say, slightly non-standard use cases for Erlang. And I can actually mention two of them for now. One is particularly web scraping, because you can simply run a separate process for each the next website you go into and just collect the data back to your computer. And the cool part here is that you start the processes and if they manage to scrape the data, then that's cool. But if they crash, that's that's also cool because you simply don't get the data there, right? It would be nice to log where they crashed, but if you don't care about all the data, then it's perfectly fine. And my idea is to work on a project, and this is combining this Neo4j and Erlang. The project is to web scrape all the... Because there is one website where like 99% of chess tournaments in Poland, all the scores are saved. So I wanted to web scrape all of that and put that into big graph and uh, learn my chances against other players. So let's say there's a player from somewhere from from Gdańsk, which is like complete north of Poland, and he plays in some tournaments, and I play here in Kraków, which is southern Poland. And I would like to say how likely I am to win against him, even though we have never played against each other, right? So stuff like that. And the second thing is, which, I somehow don't understand why it's not simply not used is that Erlang is a natural environment for, for example, Monte Carlo methods of testing certain stuff, right? Because you just implement and the experiment you want to do in Monte Carlo, for example, a roll of dice. So you pick a random number between one and six, right? And you do it a lot of times and then you simply send back a, a report on this event and you do it, each roll of a dice you can do in separate process right so and you can think of much more complicated experiments for example you can simulate a game of uh, blackjack right with different strategies and see which strategies are the least losing ones right because if unless you are in the movie usually gambling is not the best idea probably i don't encourage anyone to gambling here i just say that yeah you can check which is losing less and which is losing more so these are the two ideas. I I hope to get a blog post on each of them. If it works, I will link them later on, and if it doesn't, then it will be harder to link them, as they will be non-existent, right?
0: Is there anything you want to plug? We talked about your upcoming appearance at Lambda Days. Are there any other projects you want to... Point people to, let people know about. We mentioned the school of Erlang. You sent the link over. We'll get that in the show notes. Anything else you want to plug, promote, anything else?
1: Within a month or two months, probably. So I believe in this, it will be this term. So till June, probably, I will have the third school of Erlang slash Elixir run. And I will try doing that remotely. So if there are any joiners, and here I have to say that there is limited number of places simply because I am afraid I might not manage the questions from if there is a crowd of, let's say, 100 people asking, right? So I will try limiting people there. So that's one thing. I will be on Elixir Conf EU. So if you want to, meet, I hope I will, <laughs> depending if COVID restrictions get back from either here in Poland or in the UK, right? Yeah, so I will be on Elixir Confu, hopefully in June, if I recall correctly, in London. Yeah, and other than that, uh, you can try looking up Erlang Solutions website. If I publish blog posts, then it should be there. Yeah, see you on the conference, I think.
0: You mentioned the Erlang Solutions for blogging. Are there any other places for people to find you online, follow along, keep up to date? Is there a personal website too that you cross post things to Twitter accounts any GitHub, we got your Erlang solutions, GitHub, but anything else you want
1: to uh, point people to to follow along? I have a GitHub account, which is Alek Lisiecki. It's A-L-E-K-L-I-S-I as first four letters of my name and first four letters of my surname without any space or dash or anything, just all together. I have a Twitter account, which is, and this is this is what I have to look up because I usually don't reply to myself, right? So this is Alek Lisiecki as first four letters of name and then whole surname. I think we'll be able to link those up underneath. I also have email. If you want to email me, you can email me to my company's email if you have any question. So I, I will also send that, but maybe not spell it, not to spend all week to retyping it. And I will get
0: all those added to the show notes for anybody who wants to follow along and track you down and find out more.
1: Okay, great. Thank you very much for the interview. It was very nice talking to you.
0: I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you for taking your time to join me today. Pleasure talking with you again. Pleasure catching up and seeing, seeing what's been going on in the past year since we talked at Lambda Days virtual last year. But thanks for taking your time to join me today. Thank you very much. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.